to the October 2023 episode of our Bridging the Gaps podcast series, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, EHFF. I'm Sean O'Conline, Agstafolche, Onavor, Roiv, Erniha, Hauna, Shah. And I'm Caroline White. This month we spoke with Molly Scott Cato. Molly was formerly a Professor of Green Economics and speaks for the Green Party of England and Wales on economy and finance. She recently published a book on sustainable finance. Between 2014 and 2020, Molly was the member of the European Parliament for South West England and Gibraltar. We go over to the interview now. So we're very pleased to have Molly Scott Cato here with us. Molly, just to kick us off in our conversation, would you like to explain a little bit of your background and how you came to be at and in the European Parliament? Well, it's quite a long story because I was 51 by the time I was elected and I'd been active in green politics since, well, say 25 years by then. I went to Oxford University, but I was quite, well, I wouldn't say aimless. I was just looking around when I was young. You know, I wasn't driven by any particular aim to go anywhere. But I was always very driven by social justice. And once I had a child, the environmental issue, you know, uh, the whole issue around the future of life on Earth, let's say, became a lot more important to me. And it was around that time I joined the Green Party campaigned a lot in Oxford, went to Wales, stood for loads of different things without ever getting elected. And then somebody pointed out to me, oh, if you go to Stroud, you'll get elected. I was like, it's a good idea. So this this shows how aimless I was career-wise, I would say, that somebody needed to point that out to me. Anyway, I did come to Stroud. I did get elected to the local council here. And then I was infuriated by constantly having to put up with Tories in power. So I negotiated a sort of power-sharing thing with Labour and the Lib Dems, and we took power from the Tories 10, 10 years ago, and uh, they haven't had power since. So that's probably my greatest political achievement, actually, getting my community out of Tory control. So that was very enjoyable. Anyway, then I stood for the European Parliament in 2014. It's um, Even though the EU insisted we had a vaguely proportional system, it still had a very high threshold, which was, uh, well, you know, sort of 9%, something like that. There were six seats, about 5 million people voting. Um, so I had to campaign extremely hard, and I got <clears throat> the last seat on the basis of 11%, which was 5,000 votes out of 5 million people. So it was, you know, just sort of sneaked in. It was a very tight campaign. But yeah, it, it, it was fun. And, you know, I represented this absolutely amazing bit of the country. I was the MEP for Stonehenge. I was the MEP for Tintagel. I was the MEP for Glastonbury. And many other magical places, places that are magical in different ways. So, yeah, it was it was brilliant. And that was 2014. Great. And uh, looking back on uh, the European Parliament and its role and so on, and particularly as we look at the, the 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 context now with Brexit and a lot of our listeners are Irish, so we'll be voting next year for the European Parliament. How do you see the role of the uh, European Parliament? And particularly, uh, you might link that in with the electoral systems being different in different places. Well, you know, I had been brought up in British political culture, which has a completely prejudiced and wrong view about how European politics works. That's probably true in most um, EU countries, but I think it's particularly true in the UK. So I was pretty shocked to find out how much work there was to do for one thing as an MEP, but also how much power we had. Um, Because, you know, the nature of the European Parliament is you can't get anything through unless you're building a coalition. I mean, British politics works on the basis of winner takes all. 
and then everybody else is ignored and only there's only two parties that can win so everybody else everybody who want, prefers something else is just left out of the uh, left out of the you know the whole system really but anyway that was really an eye opener for me and most of the work in the european parliament happens in committees and i was in the uh, the monetary affairs committee and the farming and rural affairs committees so both of those things were quite fascinating i represented a rural constituency and i'm an economist by background so you know and i, I could write amendments and change law and you know we actually wrote laws and you you don't get that as a as a member of the british parliament so it was it was an eye opener in terms of what was possible and just yeah completely absorbing i was every single part of me was being used and although that was exhausting it was was also a good feeling so I did that for five years and then we had that election that I thought was probably coming, but mostly people thought it wasn't coming five years ago nearly now. And um, yeah, we, we stormed home because Labour and the Tories were both sort of fighting about Brexit. And so the Brexit party won this election and the Greens came second where I live. So yeah, <laughs> it was it was a bit of a mad election. But anyway, then we at that point we were still fighting tooth and nail to stop Brexit. And we lost that battle about six months later, only by one vote and by a, by a few days. It was a disastrous decision by the Liberal Democrats to support that general election or we would have stopped Brexit. So it was kind of on a knife edge. It is strange how the whole Brexit thing unrolled, isn't it? I mean, the the kind of ups and downs of it, you know, the, the times when it might have been stopped and it wasn't and, and so on. It's it's just looking back on all of that is, is quite... It was a real roller coaster. And I tell you what was really funny, being in the European Parliament, you know, they were so supportive. My colleagues there were just wonderful. Um, but, you know, there were times when they didn't want to leave me on my own. So there'd be a really crucial vote in Parliament, you know, as usual, ridiculously late at night. So we'd just have a big screen and bring in the beers and just sit up and watch. But, the, you know, it made the process of so-called mother of parliaments just look so absurd. It was just embarrassing. There was like questions like, why is there a guy in tights, you know, and why is there a guy with a guy? Is that a wand? You know, this sort of mace and the whole sort of weird formality of it. And of course, the most confusing thing for people who don't speak Middle English, and why should you, is why do you have eyes and nose, right? Two parts of the face, which is really yes and no. But So, yeah, it was... It was quite fascinating, but oh God, I was mortified. I was mortified by people from outside watching our so-called democracy at work. And yeah, it, it didn't work. I mean, Brexit broke our democracy. They, they couldn't win. The people who wanted Brexit to happen for their own self-interested reasons, whether they were shorting the pound or trying to avoid tax or, you know, just um, wanting to exercise illegitimate power in a whole range of ways. Those people couldn't win democratically because they didn't have arguments on their side. So they they basically lied, cheated, overspent, and so on, and and turned our democracy, you know, already very weak, into you know some kind of populist nightmare. And I'm afraid we're we're all still living with that now. Yeah, I have the impression that the the media played a big role, right? Is, would you agree in the UK? I mean, it was very difficult for the media because the people who wanted Brexit played that card around balance, right? So let's let's think about in the area of economics. There was a handful of economists, sort of economists Brexit, they were called. There's probably six people. Uh, so the, the vast majority of the economics profession were very clear. This will damage our economy. You know, it will damage us in terms of trade. We'll have less growth. I mean, whether or not we think growth is a good idea is, is another question. But, you know, the, econ the negative economic impacts were very clear. But the, the, the BBC and, and everybody follows this rule, which says if you have somebody making the case, you need somebody from the other side. So you'd have a sort of 
you know, Nobel Prize winning economist saying this is going to be really damaging for our economy. And then one of these mavericks from Economists for Brexit bringing in a whole load of stuff on the other side. And yeah, I mean, also, they couldn't keep up with the lies. That was very problematic for the media. So I had a, a guy in my local media in Bristol ringing me up and saying, you know, somebody on the Brexit side had said 800 jobs will be lost at Avonmouth Port if uh, Brexit went ahead. I mean, if Brexit didn't go ahead. And I sort of said, you know, what was that true or false? I'm like, I, c I can't keep up with their lies. You know, it's not my job to do that. And I can't keep up. But I did a quick Google search and it turned out there were only 400 jobs in the whole port. So, you know, something, those sort of things just went on all the time. You couldn't keep up. It's like Mark Twain says, you know, the, the lies halfway around the world before truth gets its boots on. That was the problem. And also they, they told good, their lies were wrapped up in entertaining stories as well, like the whole the whole fisherman's tale, you know, the, the fishy tales they told were, yeah, people enjoyed those stories. But again, I, I went down to Brixham here. Mm -hmm. We had the biggest fishery outside in Scotland, in the, outside Scotland in the southwest. A lot of jobs dependent on it. So I went down and talked to the fishermen in, in Bristol, fisher folk, I should say, and that's that's where the the industry is concentrated here. And um, they were really angry with me. I brought the advisor guy from from the EU with me to talk it through. And they they you know they were actually quite offensive to us. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I see the same guy on TV saying that you know he's gone bust and he was lied to about Brexit. So yeah. Anyway, we're here now. Uh, yeah, we can't. So so, back. Molly, what, what would you say are the key lessons from all of that? Or well, uh, looking back on it and without being too political, but <clears throat> uh, I mean, the key the key lessons for everybody, including our Irish listeners. Well, you need a well-regulated democracy. You have a well-regulated democracy. Um, you know, we have we had an extremely weak electoral commission. Um, they they should have been we should have had rules around how the campaign was going to be won. Plus, you can't have a referendum without a prospectus, right? You can't have an, a sort of open-ended referendum because then everybody pours into it what they think is going to happen. That's why the day afterwards, Cameron sort of comes out, what am I going to do? Because nobody knew what Brexit meant. Everybody had their own version of Brexit. So if you're having a referendum, you have to have two specified propositions to choose between. We didn't have that. Um, then we didn't have controls over digital communications as well. So there was data theft and manipulation via Facebook and a range of other platforms. That shouldn't be legal in any election. We still don't really have rules stopping that from being the case. And, you know, we have to constrain free speech. Free speech doesn't make, give you the right to tell lies and to make people impossible promises. So that there's a whole load of regulation there. And then there's the way politicians behave. And this changed fundamentally during um, during that campaign. So I, I've been involved in politics for a long time. I've sat on a lot of hustings. And previously, you would understand that you had to be respectful to your adversary because we're in a democracy. Some people are going to choose people from all the parties. I treat my opponents with respect. They always treated me with respect. And that's the same in the referendum as well. Half the people in the country are going to agree with you. I have to respect them. If I lose, we're all part of the same democracy afterwards. That rule was just blown apart. So people were, you know, being really aggressive and offensive to the other side. And that, unfortunately, has persisted now in terms of the way our party politics works. And that is, you can't have democracy unless 
people respect other people's right to vote for somebody else, right? That that that's how democracy works. And obviously, the stakes are a lot higher in a referendum because it's either or, and also in a two-party system because it's you know it's conservative or Labour. So I think these risks are much lower in a in a multi-party democracy. Actually, that's that's one of the things I see very clearly about Brexit. It wouldn't have happened under a PR system. Yeah, I mean, the point that you were making about um, this supposed need for, for balance in the media reminds me a lot of the way climate disruption is, was treated a bit less now, thank goodness. Definitely. But, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've got to let the people who deny climate change have a voice and give them a platform. Yeah. We took we wrote to the BBC as the Green Party making that point, and they did change their guidelines around that, actually, as a consequence of that. But they're now but they haven't seemed to have followed through on other subjects and but obviously they were under massive political pressure over brexit as well and we see that continual pressure on the bbc um which is undermining their ability to act in an impartial way which is you know again very reprehensible mm, mm. would you be able to just zoom out a bit from the whole brexit context and talk a bit about the uk's role generally or how you see that evolving over you know in the future with global trade the financial system all these big these big issues you know how do they all tie in with what we've just been yeah saying? i think it's interesting that the financial industry was not included in the withdrawal agreement from the eu and that was because um i think some people in the city Th sort of thought they could operate in a different way, not in the same constrained way that was required by EU law, more risk-taking probably, more risk to, to you know, investors. Um, obviously, that's a huge sector for the UK, and um, it, it plays a predominant role in our economy and has done for centuries, actually, through the use of finance to manipulate trade, really. Um, so tr trade in goods is not the point finance and trade in services is the point and so um the idea was that we were go at least this was the apparent idea was that we were going to now be this you know amazing global trading nation you can see the sort of appeal of that to people who can hear the strains of land of hope and glory in the back of their heads and you know living in the past you can see why that would be appealing reading I don't know if you've read the Aubrey Maturin books. I love those books. But, you know, that's the kind of idea. People are thinking about 1800, not 2020. Um, but what this has resulted in is like the transfer of deals that we already had through the EU and then a tiny number of really obscure trade deals with, you know, distant far off places. I always say the Pitcairn Islands, but I'm really taking the piss when I say that. It's not really the Pitcairn Islands. But, you know, tiny little places to whom, whom we sell 25 cabbages a year. You know, it's been, it's been farcical, honestly. But on the other hand, when we sign the trade deal with Australia, for example, we're now allowing meat produced in Australia to standards that wouldn't be acceptable to the EU and wouldn't historically have been acceptable to us into our markets. And so that's putting pressure to reduce the sort of standards of animal welfare or environmental standards that we had when we were members of the EU. And it's also meaning we're diverging from the EU, which would make it difficult for us to rejoin in the future. So I think maybe I've been too dismissive of what they were up to when they were signing those trade deals. It wasn't really about helping industry. It was much more political than that. But, you know, aside from trade, I think it's clear that we've been diminished as a as a global player by the decision itself, but also by the absurd way that our democracy has been, been shown to have behaved, you know, it's, um, and, and also of course the caliber of people we've got in the government now, because the main 
condition for being part of this government was being a Brexit loyalist. And so most of the best Conservatives were automatically ruled out and a lot of them were thrown out of the party. That's why you see just incompetence, sheer incompetence. You know, the country's never been so badly governed and that's causing, I mean, it caused a lot of deaths during COVID. It's causing a lot of economic decline and, you know, real social problems as well as diminishing diminishing our status on the global stage. Just to, to move on a little bit into the broader issues around climate and biodiversity collapse and all of that and where really really long-term vision is required and political parties or leaders who come up with uh, short-term approaches that ultimately lead to solutions but they are very much the unpopular ones at the moment Um, you know and you we see that uh, almost around the world, but certainly in Europe and Germany and Ireland in particular, and maybe in the UK. So what do you say to that? Or do you, do you agree? I, I feel we've been a bit naive there because the fossil fuel industry lied for decades and that's why we're in the mess we're in. It took us a long time to realise that they were actually the people we should be fighting. You know, we said to people, oh, wear another jumper. Why did we spend decades doing that? We should have just gone for fossil fuels 40 years ago. I mean, I made that mistake. We all made that mistake. But now we're making the mistake of not realising how they've evolved. So they evolved from saying they were saying climate change wasn't happening, then saying they weren't responsible for climate change. Now what they're saying is the people who are make, who are dealing with climate change will make you poorer and colder and that's their line and that's why you know um, green ministers in Ireland and in Germany are unpopular because the fossil fuel industry lies basically because the reality here is that certainly I, I don't know what your policies are but our policies for example are free home insulation you would have a warmer home and pay less on your bills more public transport you know you won't need to pay those high petrol prices because you'll have a frequent an accessible and very cheap or possibly free bus service coming to close to your home. So the vision of um, a green future is a vision where there's greater equality and where people on lower incomes have a much better lifestyle. And we, we should we haven't made that clear enough. So I'm partly blaming us for that, but also I'm saying that you know the fossil fuel industry has a large amount of cash there to make the deceitful case against the climate transition and it's and then our political opponents will then allow us to carry the can for that rather than sticking up for us so it will be interesting to see how this plays out in our two-party system because we will get a change of government next year we will have a labor um energy secretary and it will be ed miliband who's the reason we have the climate change act going back to 2008 that's the that's the reason we've made the progress we have in terms of climate change so it will be really interesting to see how that plays out. Will he get the same sort of attack? He probably will, but it won't be. It, you won't be able to pile, pile that off on the Greens as part of a coalition in this country. It will be Labour leading, but I'm sorry to say we're already seeing them backtracking quite rapidly. Whereas if we had Greens in the coalition, we will have Greens in Parliament. We hope more Green MPs next time. But if we had Greens in a coalition government, they would be making sure that Labour didn't backtrack. And that's that's the question. Will you know? Will the Labour Energy Secretary backtrack when he comes under that sort of pressure from what is deceitful, really deceptive um, communications funded by people who 
see the writing on the wall if we actually tackle climate change. Incidentally, just in brackets, it is incredible that you would have people who presumably have children and grandchildren of their own who would put those corporate profits above the future of life on Earth. But unfortunately, that seems to be the world we live in. Yeah, I know. I mean, and it seems as though there's a, they, they might intellectually grasp possibly that this is a reality, but emotionally, they obviously haven't grasped. It. Well, sometimes I think people go to work and they leave their sort of morality and emotions and photographs of their children at the door when they walk into their office. Quite hard to see how people can do that. But Mali, you, you mentioned specifically the fossil fuel industry, but that, they're not the only ones. There are lots of vested interests that oh. are manipulating the agendas, I think. That's that's true. But I decided a while ago to just go for fossil fuels because I realized I hadn't done that enough. You know, I've <clears throat> done work on sustainable finance myself and that's important work. And there's lots of important work. But I think let's you know, what we've got to do here is get fossil fuels out of our economy as quickly as possible. I agree. There are lots of vested interests and in other industries that will lose. But most of those industries could shift what they're doing. Right? the way I from my sustainable finance point of view and, and where the investment's going, the way I visualize this is like there's transitional sectors that's most of the economy there's already green sectors renewable energy and then there's sectors that actually will die and there aren't very many in the third category anybody who's advertising luxury flights for the weekend you know they're in that category fossil fuel industry um manufacturers of suvs you know there's a few people there but most of those companies can can shift to do something else so i think yeah anyway that that's what i'm targeting now and i also like the whole question about food and agriculture and so on obviously that's important as part of the transition but i think there's quite a lot of energy being distracted there as well after all we, we do all have to eat um shifting your diet from one thing to another yeah eat half as left half as much meat that would be really useful but shifting our diet is not going to be the same kind of impact as just ending our use of fossil fuels so i'm quite skeptical about all the distractions there are away from getting fossil fuels out of our economy, which is overridingly important. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is. I think it's it's 78% of emissions, basically, fossil fuel, isn't it? So, I mean, that's a huge... There you are. And we could do everything without... We can just remove that, right? Even if you shift from eating delightfully homegrown grass-fed beef to eating lentils grown in India, you know, let's compare the energy impact, you're still going to have to eat something. You don't have to fly. You don't have to... Um, heat your home with fossil fuels etc etc so yeah anyway you, you can hear I'm slightly on that jag for about a year now but I do think that's quite important I think there's a lot of extraneous stuff going on let's focus on the main point as you say let's get rid of 80 percent of the emissions then we can think about the rest of it one thought I did have and this kind of links in with the final thing we wanted to ask you about was I know in Ireland for example um I mean this is a, this is just anecdotal but I've heard and I know Sean has also heard there's the in some rural areas there's um Part of the kind of antagonism towards greens or the politics of, of climate action and so on comes from a sense of, for example, there's a lot of mining prospecting and, and that kind of thing. And it's all linked in, at least in the publicity for it, it's linked in with the green transition. And there's a sense, I think, for a lot of people in these areas that they're they're under threat from this. And I think there's some truth to it in some cases, but it's not because we don't need the green transition. You see what I'm saying? It's because there's a sense that these companies are coming in and they want to just extract. It's another kind of extractivism. You know, they just want to have more and more. It's all about growth. It's all about expansionism. And uh, they want to just maximize the energy they're producing. And if they're not allowed to do it with fossil fuel anymore, they're going to do it with something else instead. So so there's there's a sense that there's no limit or there's no, there's no vision of where we want to go with the economy. And I think um, a way to kind of get these people on the side of 
phasing out fossil fuel is to talk about vision and where we want to go with the economy and what's 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 the overall goal here because so often it's just sort of assumed that we all want more and more and more stuff and you know that's what we all need and that's the way we just are that's human nature and so on and um as, as you know we're working on the project at the moment in faster with some partners in the well-being economy ireland hub which is all about new narratives and new visions and using the power of the arts also to to try and think of you know formulate new ways to 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 think about all these things do you have any thoughts about that yourself any comments i have a lot of thoughts about that but probably not time to, to say them all but just to say at the beginning it is important to avoid greenwashing that we define what are the green sectors as we go through the transition so the the eu taxonomy has been pushed off course politically but that whole idea of defining what is green is really important but yes, absolutely on the well-being economy. I mean, the economy, oh, I can't remember the numbers, but it's several fold larger than it was 10 years ago. But, you know, we, we have twice as many prescriptions for antidepressants. So what is the point of the economy if it's about making sure that we're all happier? It's utterly failing under this model. And part of that is because um, of the, the pressure on the environment, the loss of green spaces, all those things that make people happy and healthy are being diminished as we have more economic growth. So, you know, we were both great admirers of, of Richard Douthwaite and his wonderful book, The Growth Illusion, which is about how, you know, growth enriched the few, impoverished the many, and is destroying the planet, essentially, paraphrasing the subtitle of his book. And that's as true now, truer now than it was then. <clears throat> I loved reading your thing about creatives because, well, firstly, it starts with a quote from Gary Snyder, which is always just makes you sit right back and think. I wrote a book myself called The Bioregional Economy a few years ago, and it, it started from that place of saying, well, its subtitle was Land, Liberty and the Pursuit of Happiness. And that was the point, that in order to be free, you need to have access to land. And in order to be happy, you have to have access to land. So it was all about reconnecting back to the land and back to local communities. That's where human beings are happy, not in a shopping mall. You know, it's so, so certain people are benefiting from this economy, but big news it's not us actually and in terms of the new visions yeah I think I think that's a very important part of the new vision it's about connection it's about connection to land and connection to other people and so why is art important there because art is the way that we express those connections and I'm saying this as somebody okay I'll go to my choir tonight singing is my expression of art that I do every week and I make myself do that even though I spend a hell of a lot of time sitting at this computer but you know what I live in Stroud I have my woodland just up the road I'm part of a community farm here, so I get my vegetables grown by lovely people who I'm responsible for employing, who, again, a mile down the road. I've come here because I can have that sort of lifestyle here, but I, I think everybody deserves that kind of lifestyle. It's not trying to deprive people of an urban consumerist paradise, because that, that's not what makes people happy. It's giving everybody the opportunity to have the, the holistic, really fulfilling life that we are sort of, I think we, we sort of try and model that here in Stroud, but it's certainly not something that's selfish. Although I tell you the problem is if you do that effectively, everybody from London moves in. <laughs> but, so you've got to be a bit careful. Don't tell them. Unfortunately, word got out and it was in the Sunday Times. So it was the nicest place to live in the country. There you are. But yeah, I, I think as Greens and as artists, that's what made Stroud a good place to be. The artists came first because there was it was an old mill town. There was cheap space for them to inhabit. They came first and then the Greens followed. And between us, we've made a, a wonderful community to live in and everybody wants a piece of it. We're, we're not rich, though, and we don't buy much stuff. So that is definitely not what makes happy people or a strong community. Great, Molly. I think we'll round off on that 
very positive note and thank you very very much for speaking to us and obviously it was very short and there's a lot more we could talk about but thank you for being with us and for sharing that i appreciate the way you led the conversation to something where i did feel positive <laughs> so thank you it's been good for me too that was molly scott cato uk green party spokesperson on finance and the economy if you enjoyed this podcast please share the link on social media and keep an eye out for our next one which will go online at the end of November. <laughs>